and welcome to episode 19 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and want to help other people find that, we are all in favor of that, and you should please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact us or get more news and information or get announcements about new episodes, follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. To learn about past episodes or leave comments, find us online at techdoneright.io. We really love getting your feedback and answering your questions. Uh, this is kind of an unusual show. It's a live panel discussion called Navigating the JavaScript World that we recorded at Chicago's Dev Bootcamp on August 24th. Joining me on the panel were Zach Briggs, Chuck Lewacki, Melanie Sumner, and Marcus Woodson. We talk about JavaScript frameworks, how the JavaScript ecosystem is changing, uh, how to evaluate frameworks, what kind of knowledge is important across tools. We took some questions. We talked about components versus functional orientation. It was a lot of fun. This was recorded live, and it was kind of my first try with some new audio equipment. Uh, so please excuse any weirdness with volume levels and things like that. Thank you. Thank you for your patience. And I hope you really enjoyed the panel. Uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. Okay. Hello, everybody. My name is Noel Rappin, and this is our Navigating the World of JavaScript panel discussion. Why don't we start by having everybody introduce themselves, talk about briefly how they got into JavaScript and, and what kind of front-end tools they use, and we'll use that as a, a uh, start-off point. I can start off. Uh, my name is Zach Briggs. I've been building single-page apps, if I might use a crude, overly coarse phrase, uh, since 2012 or so. These days, I use Vue.js. And actually, these days, I use as little JavaScript as possible, but no less. So uh, I'm at Kin uh, Insurance, and we build everything out server-side first, and then enhance from there. That's what I've been up to lately. My name is Trek. Uh, I've been doing JavaScript since basically the beginning. I work at a small tech startup called Popular Pays, like everyone else, we're hiring. Yeah, and I build pretty much exclusively client-server-style apps. Servers mostly in Ruby, some Node, clients all in Ember.js. So I'm like the opposite end of the scale from Zach. Uh, my name is Marcus Woodson. Um, I've been doing JavaScript development for about 12 years now. I started off doing just PHP, and then jQuery came out, and I kind of learned that you can do some cool things without Flash. And that kind of switched me over to just wanting to concentrate on the front end. The tools I use are pretty much React. I use a lot of that. A lot of Angular, um, 1.x, haven't gotten to 2. Um, I think I'm going to stick with things, either React or Vue, something like that. I don't know about Ember. <laughs> think about it. Hi, I'm Melanie Sumner. JavaScript is sort of my most recent foray. I started in PHP, and then I went to C Sharp and spent some time in the .NET world. And I actually do Ember. It's really awesome. You should try it. <laughs> and I do a lot of accessibility work now for a big bank. And I'm Noel. Uh, I've been doing JavaScript probably the longest of anybody here, dating back before, almost to the beginning, really, and before, professionally, but long before Firebug and jQuery made it actually like doable. In a, in a time when you would like beg clients not to use JavaScript because it was such a humongous pain in the neck. Um, these days, I don't have a pet framework. I've been experimenting with a couple things, trying to learn React and Elm and a couple of other TypeScript and, and related technologies, and mostly just bewildered by the whole ecosystem, to be honest. Now that we've all like established that we all program in JavaScript, more or less by choice, which is good, start with what you like about working in JavaScript. What do you like about the ecosystem right now? What what excites you? What keeps you in the in this community? I mean, for me, I think JavaScript's sometimes a nightmare language, but the thing I like the most is uh, it's everywhere, right? Like JavaScript has eaten the world and I can write apps that deploy on essentially every device. Uh, and for me, that's like the dream of Java has been finally realized in JavaScript. It runs in web browsers, which are pretty much everywhere. So for me, like be able to get my work in front of basically nearly everyone on the planet is the most compelling thing. Yeah, that's pretty similar to why I like this so much. I with PHP or with any service side language, so a lot of them are going to be a little bit slower or you just never really see something happen. It's, people would ask me what I do, and I'm like, I'm a PHP developer. They're like, can I see this on the web somewhere? And it's like, no, not really. It's doing something in the background somewhere. And I really like the idea of doing something that you can like immediately get feedback from. And JavaScript specifically, because I like that because of how easy it was to kind of get into it, even though it was kind of hard to get really good at it and just, you know, it takes time, but just doing something, it's, you open up a console and you can start writing JavaScript. You don't really need 
you know, a whole build environment or anything like that. And recently the community now is kind of like, it's like, it's like Netflix. It's, you have so many choices and it's just kind of like going around to say, all right, which one suits my needs or which one do I think will fit this project in, you know, the best way and what can I get, get running quickly? That really helps keep me um, using JavaScript. Maybe it's more that I like the community because I get to work with people at other companies by using open source JavaScript code. I get to work with people from LinkedIn or Apple and all these other companies and other places and all these are really amazing programmers who also write really great code and I can benefit from that and I can then add my code to it. And I also like that it's made writing accessible code so much easier. And then components. Oh my God, they're so great. Like, especially Ember components. Sorry, I'm a huge fan. Just everything you can do with them. It's, it's fantastic. Okay, I'll, I'll follow up. What can you do with them? <laughs> and explain, I, this is something that I've been like, explain to me like concisely what a component is and why I should be interested. Okay. Not necessarily. I'm not trying to be scolding. I'm just, sure. like, I find this, I find the use of this term to be confusing among different JavaScript frameworks. So what do you mean yeah. when you say? When I say component, so I spent the whole week actually this week um, working on an, a UI add-on building out UI components, building out buttons and lists and card component where I can put all of the ARIA properties on there and that are appropriate and needed. I can ARIA accessibility properties. Sorry. I can put toggles on there to enable and disable based on JavaScript logic, take it out of the tab index if I want to. And it gives me that kind of powerful dynamic rendering that I really need in a big multinational corporation kind of environment, all with the ease of JavaScript, which it's pretty great to not have to write Java. <laughs> I'd say um, everybody needs that level of power. Like Everybody needs to be able to create arbitrary interactions on the web when you need an escape hatch from the link and navigate and submit paradigms that we started with. And the old ways, the query and attach event handler very quickly runs into serious issues. So by having isolated components that gives us the power to create arbitrary interactions. Is it fair to say that there's kind of an evolution here where we start with three-line event handlers that were in the, embedded in the HTML back in the terrible, horrible days when I like cursed JavaScript on a regular basis, unlike completely unlike today, um, when I cursed it out on a weekly basis, to uh, like jQuery spaghetti kind of framework kind of code, to like data binding frameworks, which is a complete paradigm shift where you are counting on the framework to to handle the interaction between your data and the DOM in a way that you had to do yourself before. And then two components, which are sort of packaging that data binding in a more reusable, more compact. Is that a fair way to describe? Like, I talk about components a lot, and I think the number one misunderstanding about them is that they're about reuse. Like object-oriented programming yes, in general? Yes, it is not about reuse. It's about isolating behavior. I think the probably best analogy, and React was one of the first groups of people to nail this really well, is that a component is like a function. Uh, it takes inputs, which could be data or perhaps other components, and its output is rendered HTML. And you can think of the isolation you get from functional programming uh, applying to sort of any type of programming on the web where pass in data and you get out a rendered uh, bit of behavior. And inside that black box of, of sort of this function, you get out a rendered bit of HTML, and inside of it you don't really know what happens. It could be something as small as uh, like a single icon, could be a component, or a component could be something that's very reusable. It could be you could have an entire like date picker component, and the important part of both of those is that they have a sort of a known interface, and that what's happening internal to them you shouldn't need to worry about too much as a as a consumer of those components. And it's it's very similar in concept, I think, to server side languages, server side templates that can't see their parents' stuff variables. The the difference here is. We're responsible for handling behavior, whereas with server-side templates, the browser's responsible for handling the behavior. Behavior on the client. On the client, yeah. sorry, yes. Components are about isolation, which enables you to then do what better than you did before? I mean, that's a good question. What I mean, the same thing that you get in isolation 
everywhere, right? Like you get to focus on a smaller problem. Uh, you get to worry about inputs and outputs and not necessarily what's happening inside the function. Uh, you get clearly defined interfaces. Uh, all these things are valuable for code organization in general. I, you mentioned jQuery spaghetti as sort of the antithesis of this isolation pattern. Well, a previous step. Yeah. Yes, a previous step to the isolation pattern, perhaps, where things were not really <laughs> isolated, right? Like a common programming model in jQuery is to have, for example, a completely rendered page, which has a document object model behind it, and then to just sort of reach anywhere into that page for elements on it and gussy them up with behavior. And a huge flaw with that, well, one huge benefit of it is it's massively approachable, right? Like you have a page, you don't even need to worry about how the page is rendered. It can be rendered by a different team. You're adding behavior. You might have a contract with uh, CSS class names to denote like where specific behaviors are going to live. But you also can't guarantee that, you know, two different teams or even two different people on the same team are not overusing a selector and both trying to add behavior to the same element. And so that's like the ultimate not isolated environment is essentially everything's global everywhere. And on small projects, that's can be a huge advantage because you get to work really, really quickly, but doesn't scale well to multiple developers in any way. And that's, I mean, kind of the benefits of isolation on the web are the benefits of isolation in OO or in functional programming. Yeah, just uh, like piggyback on that, it's when you're working on a team with, you know, five or six different developers, components becomes important when you need three people to work on three separate parts of the application. It's like if when everything was together, it's you can, it's really hard to do that. When you have multiple people hitting the same file, you got merge conflicts if you're using some kind of version control, which you probably should be. And <laughs> before components, it was just a huge mess. And like you just kind of hated your job. You, just, you said you wrote Angular 1, right? Yeah. Yeah. Before, like, we had directives, which I'm not sure how much Angular experience is in the room. Angular used to have this thing called, and they still do, this thing called directives. They didn't have components, but they were supposed to be like components, but they had this kind of confusing API, basically, to kind of build a component. There's a, a lot of properties you had to set, a lot of things with like a letter would kind of just, just define what it was doing, you know, like an, an E meant element, an A meant attribute. And if you didn't know this stuff, you're either going to be Googling it all the time, or if you're in a hurry, you're just going to pick whatever the, pre the previous person used. And try Googling for the letter E. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> it was a yes. Google, that's one of those ones where Google comes up with just the, the numerical constant, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then components came. They were like, all right, we're not going to use directives. Now just use a component. We got rid of all of that stuff. Now it's just just give me your template, you know, give me your, your bindings, which is what properties you want to pass into your component. Um, you know, that's you know, basically it. it makes it a lot simpler. It's kind of, it's what React does and it's what, it's what Vue does the same thing. It's what yeah. everything does. Everyone I mean, it's, it's, it's like the single unifying concept of pretty much every framework right now is the isolation of components. Yeah. The second big one is probably, uh, controlling application flow through the URL through routing. Um, like components and routing probably describe the modern web at a very basal level. And then every framework or set of tools is basically a riff on that right now. Where does like a state manager like redux fit into that paradigm is that also the next is that part of the next thing is that total is it a distraction is it covering up some horrible problem with the with all these component with all these frameworks okay. yeah <laughs> yeah you nailed it no <laughs> so okay so uh, redux is um it's actually a standalone library that it's meant to work with react and its mo goal in life is to hold a global store of values um that is the the single source of truth for all the data in your app and then your uh, React code or your whatever code knows to query that uh, for the single source of data, and it can only be updated in relatively constrained ways. So the great part about that is you have one source of data, and that's all you need to worry about that. And the terrible part of that is you have one global source of data, and you have to worry about it all the time. Yeah. So how does that fit in? Is that a good thing to have? Is it annoying? I've never really worked with Redux, so I'm, I'm looking for advice. Should I learn it, basically, is what it so, uh, so components, traditionally, you pass in data, data down events up, uh, pass in data. Sorry, it's a reflex. It's, it's, it's just a reflex. Uh, and based on the data you pass in, a traditional component, it draws a thing, you know, in the web browser. Right, right, right. So think about uh, a shopping cart in a menu bar with a count of uh, items you have in your cart. Nothing else in that menu bar 
gives a crap about how many items you have in your cart, right? So I think of a store uh, uh, such as such as Redux uh, as a place to put stuff, data that is not sensitive to location on the page, basically. So if 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 it doesn't need to care about the arbitrary hierarchy you're building, then I'll often reach for a store so that way I can move components around more freely without breaking. It's a stupid hack. You can send your emails to Trek. <laughs> Trek at popularpays.com or tweet me at Trek. Fight me nerds. Uh, no, it's a stupid hack, right? Like in a, in a pure functional world that I think is the main selling point of a lot of, of frameworks. So t- take the example. So what's interesting about that is Elm, which is pure functional has a global data store. Yep. Yeah, and which is hilarious because I think they would be I think they're bad about it, right? Like you you're in a purely functional world, but it's like, oh, but there's secret side channels for how to get data outside. Yeah, yeah it's called being able to do something. Right. <laughs> so the uh the the great lie is that the web is stateless. Uh it is in a server world, and I think people would love that in a client world. But the web is just not uh, in a, in a web page, just not stateless. So like the the pitch of almost all these frameworks is uh, you pass data down, events sort of come up uh, through handlers, but you have to pass the handlers down. So to use Zach's example of imagine you have a shopping cart and you're sort of nested deeply in the page, but there's a navigational element at the top of the page that shows you know how many elements are in your cart, and you, inside one of these components deep in the page, you add an item to the cart, and you want that navigation to also reflect, okay, now there are four items in the cart. In like a purely functional world, all the way from the nav, which would be like your, or like the page, which would have the nav, which would be your root element, down to like the products page, down to the items listing, down to the button that says add an item in this cart, you'd have to be passing a handler that says like, okay, cool, when you add an item to the cart, make sure you call me. And that's, you know, called through my parent and my parent and my parent and my parent and all the way up to the top. Yeah, but I'm exhausted just listening to you describe it. Right, and to say, okay, hey, there's a new thing here. And, like, you could you could architect that way. But, I mean, Zach brought up a good point of, like, cool, but then when you start shifting elements around. Oh, it's so painful. And, and you're working in a language that's not typed. Uh, it is very easy to forget, like, oh, right, whoops, now I, now I need to pass this to a different element. Or now there's a parent in between that, for example, like, you know, imagine, uh, you know, five levels deep and you insert one extra level and forget to pass this callback down to the last child. Now you've broken it. And if you don't have good sort of acceptance tests around behavior like this, you're never going to realize until you get reported, like, hey, the, the, you know, the shopping cart at the top of the page is not updated. And so the cheat is, you know, something like a side channel of like, oh, yeah, data, data flows down, except when you just have access to global data everywhere. And you can just be like, oh, there's one more thing here. Just increment. It's, it is a cheat. Ember does it too. We have, we have data stores for data. I think every framework essentially has this, even ones that are purporting to be like, you know, purely functional. Yeah, closure script has references as atoms that you shift. Yeah, I think a lot of this is like marketplace, like the weird sort of marketplace, like stuff that's really, really hard or, or really annoying. We route around and try and figure out. A, I mean, hack is not necessarily a bad <laughs> uh, word. No, it's a lot of fumes. Oh yeah, sure, it does work, but it's also like you have to keep track of it. It's state, and state is hard to keep track of. It's easy to break. But but I've also seen the best React programmers just sing with re- with Redux. And I, I'd, I'd love to hear Marcus talk about it. <laughs> but I'll tell you why. So no, the, the problem was, like what, like what you were saying, was before there was Redux, before there was Flux, and you wanted to build a React application, you had to keep all of your state in, like, your main app container. Mm-hmm. I wasn't called a container, kind of, I guess. Your main app component had to hold all of your state and probably all of your methods that, can hit like databases and things like that, meaning like you like you have your app, your main app, your nav menu, and then a page and like a button in that page and like a list in that child page. And you click on a button, add to pass it all the way back to your main component, get do something, and then send it all the way back down. And that's that was just like what you did for React. Then you know Flux came out, and we'll skip over how they did everything because that kind of helps with that explains more of the Redux, but it was kind of a pain to get actually implemented, and no one really liked it. And then the Redux guys came from based off of what Elm does right. because they saw how the Elm was doing it, which is a functional language. Elm is a completely different functional language that compiles down to JavaScript and also contains its own framework with a global state that lets you draw yeah. web pages. So they kind of stole, not stole, but collaborated. Stole. Stole, stole. stole. <laughs> stole the I, idea. Wait, I mean, there's a pretty rich tradition in the JavaScript framework world, right, Ember people, yeah. of stealing. 
Hey, they close. They stole it from Closure Script, so it's all. It gave you the ability to say you do have, you still have your one Redux store, but that's you don't really have that in your code. Like you're not like you don't have a Redux file with everything. You could, but you wouldn't ever want to do that. You still have specific stores for specific like components, really. So I might still have a store that's just for the product detail page and like a store for just my nav menu and Redux behind the scenes kind of puts them together for you. So I'm still just dispatching actions in any component without having to pass things down. It's kind of like a, there's a, a higher order component that Redux comes with. A higher order component is a component that takes in some other component, adds stuff to it and spits out a better component, basically. <laughs> But this is behind the scenes. So Redux kind of gives you this, this thing so you can still take your current components and just kind of add it on there and dispatch actions from anywhere. And you don't really have to worry about that one store. You just have multiple smaller bits of information. Now, one day that will probably change. I'm sure as apps get larger and larger, you're going to have, you know, 50 different Redux stores that you're kind of dealing with. Mm-hmm. And just like almost anything else in JavaScript, that's kind of what happens. We hit this limit where everyone's just pissed off. And somebody, some new framework's gonna yeah, come Ember three or something. Totally storeless, no stores at all. Right, they'll figure something out. Chains around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so so I'm copywriting that URL right. The point was, it's like it's it's still a good way to kind of manage your state, and it's better than what it used to be. Uh, better than what it used to be is the JavaScript. Model, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes we're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, that gets to something too, like. One of the things that is, I think, intimidating about the JavaScript ecosystem to somebody who is new to it, or if you're like me, like you dip yourself into it every for a little bit every few months, every couple years, what's intimidating is that every time I turn around and look back, everything seems to have changed. Like suddenly there's Webpack. What's Webpack? Well, it's like Grunt. Oh, I don't know what Grunt, I don't even remember what that is anymore. Like, first of all, how do you like deal with this churn? And secondly, like what kind of heuristics do you use to evaluate whether a new kind of tool is interesting to you, whether you want to even, like all of you at one point came to the tools you're using and that said, this is cool, I'm going to keep using this, or I'm going to look at this. Like what makes you make that decision? When I found, when I found Ember, it sounds like when I found Jesus or something, sorry. Um, so I learned actually Angular 1 first, and it was a nightmare because you could just apparently shove vanilla JavaScript in anywhere. And we had this one dude on our team who thought he was super cool and super smart, and he would never follow I'm, I'm right here. any of the like Angular way to do it. And he would just put extra code, and nobody would ever know what it did, really, because it was very weird. But when I found Ember, it's like... That's when JavaScript actually started making sense to me. Maybe it's because I spent so long in WordPress and PHP land writing, you know, that kind of modular pieces that all fit together into the bigger thing. And Ember seems very prescriptive, like, do it in this order, please. Thank you. Trust us. We have the experience. We know you're going to need these things every time. And that's the part about it that just really got me. But to keep up, I'm up at 5 a.m. every day. I read blogs that's from. That's terrifying, honestly. <laughs> I read blogs from five to six because that's my time to keep up. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was deciding that this was important to me and interesting to me, and this is what I had the energy for. This is what I wanted to do. Therefore, I keep up. Therefore, I have my lists where I just sort of keep track of. Oh, what are my build tools right now? What do people like? What are they talking about? And Twitter, like the people who make the internet are on Twitter. It's totally awesome because (laughs) it's true though, right? I can tweet a question about the internet on Twitter and get an answer really fast. Maybe you post it on a message board or ask in a chat room. Maybe you get an answer, maybe not. But Twitter's awesome because not only do I get the answers I want, I get all these other answers for weeks after, <laughs> especially if I've got hashtag reactive there somewhere, you know. Um, so that's how I keep up. Yeah, I mean, getting into this type of this industry, it, I, I, you really need to love like learning. Mm. 
and improving. And like that, that's just kind of the kind of person that I've always been. Not with just writing code or whatever, but like anything, if something's broken, you know, I, I want to know why and how can I fix it? And then you start writing code and that's every single day, like all day. It's, you're, you know, no, nobody writes perfect code. You're going to write code. It's going to throw an error in the console and you're going to, all right, what's going on? So you're doing this constantly. And similar to the up at five, the, the way that I just, you know, spent so much time learning was I, I just stay up late. <laughs> not, not as much anymore, but my younger days, I, you know, it was just kind of like I'd work, you know, nine to five. Then I'd be right back on the computer from eight till like midnight, one o'clock. I just had the time then, and now I got a family, and that kind of like goes away. But um, and I, I always tell younger people, I'm like, do it now because <laughs> one day you can't, and it's very helpful for you. But yeah, you, I'm reading tons of blogs, um, following a lot of good people on Twitter. That really helps um, to figure out what's going to be good. Because yeah, there's tons of li fr uh, libraries and frameworks that come out, but it's like, well, which one is going to pick up traction, and which one is going to Mel, you know, come into my team and everybody can use. I mean, learning a framework that you personally like yourself and you just kind of like want to get into it, that's a really good thing you do just, be, just to get that crave of learning into you or whatever you wanted to do. Another part of it is if you're working on a team and you probably will be one day, it's trying to figure out what's going to be good for everybody else. And that's one of the big reasons people were picking up things like Angular and React because you can look at the ecosystem and go, well, there's, you know, what, 30,000 stars on GitHub, and there's just tons of people and information out there. If I had a question on, like, CycleJS, it might be a little bit harder to get a direct answer than if I just posted a question about, you know, what does set state do in React? You know, you're going to have a billion answers in <laughs> two minutes. So, yeah, that kind of goes into how do I know what should I be thinking about using or what should I be, you know, trying out right now? I also wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> And read a bunch, but I I read a lot of code, not so much blogs, but I go through project codes. There was actually a point, so I was on the Ember core team for a while, and uh, there was a point where I was reading every issue and pull request in Backbone, Angular, and Ember. This is when the projects were a little younger. There wasn't quite the activity there is on all of them now, and just reading a ton of code gave me a lot of perspective on basically all of those things. I was reading the Ember code because I wanted to see how the framework was changing, what changes we were making. I was reading Angular and Backbone to see what ideas we could steal. But yeah, reading a lot of code has been helpful for me. I mean, I don't have a family. I'm single, very desperately single. Um, <laughs> so I, I do have more free time. But I also have healthy work-life balance. You know, I work out and do stuff. So I don't think the churn... Uh, you can at, at Trek. Um. <laughs> I'm not sure that going to the gym qualifies as work-life balance. That's how Marquez and I met. <laughs> I actually don't think the churn is as bad now as it was, at least uh, in JavaScript framework code, as it used to be. Right? Uh, we have mostly settled on, well, one, a very consistent set of abstractions and patterns. Um, and for me, this feels very similar to what happened post-Rails, uh, whether or not you've ever used Ruby on Rails, if you've used something else, you've likely used a framework that is cribbing patterns from Rails, which stole them from Smalltalk, but whatever, and you know Ruby stuff. So right now, it feels very much like uh, there was a ton of experimentation in the JavaScript framework world uh, in the like 2010 to 2012, maybe 2013 era, and we, we've very much settled on a set of patterns, uh, and learning these patterns in any of the frameworks is gonna is gonna serve you well. So Vue or React or whatever, they all have their particular strengths and weaknesses, which we can talk about at you know at length. Trust me. Where the churn does feel like it is is in some of the tooling stuff, like build tooling. I don't keep up on that a ton because, like Melanie, I I accepted Tomster as my personal code savior back in like 2011, and uh, we have an amazing CLI and the particulars of how builds and deploys and other things happen are not concerns of mine because um, I don't care. I'm primarily interested in building product questions about like the nitty gritty of how my code builds or splits or gets into production. Like I want to type a command and have it happen. I don't really care about what's going on under the hood personally. I know some people are very geeked about that. I also think some people are sort of have a masochistic tendency of like, they don't feel like they're really programming unless they know all the nitty gritty of what's going into their code. And I, I have bad news for you about how the internet is built. You do, actually don't understand how any of it works. It's, it's abstractions all the way down. The question was, what are those patterns? I think isolating into components. 
Um, you see that in React and Vue and Ember and Angular with web components, and then managing state in some way. Uh, that's like Redux, Flux, the Ember Store, uh, and then really the URL as as a major pattern uh, for describing the sort of nestedness of an interface, which I think Ember was kind of the first one to. React Router was in initially a sort of riff on Ember's router. Ryan Florence liked the routing, didn't like the rest of the framework, and sort of got excited about React and wrote this router. So the combination of state management, components for rendering, and, and isolating state, and then routing for sort of controlling the larger interactions on the page seem to be the pattern that kind of everyone has landed on. Uh, I think Elm even now has a router built in. Yeah, I remember it didn't Elm, to start. Elm has a router, but not really components gotcha. as such. Because it's functional, like the idea of component is more of an object yep. term, so Elm doesn't really have components, but it does have a router. Those seem to be the core concepts. Now, the concepts in the greater JavaScript world around things like building, performance, how to handle styles, all of that stuff, that still seems to be where a lot of experimentation is going on. Uh, the good news is, depending on what you're doing, that shouldn't matter over much. Like, if you're still building your project with Gulp or Grunt, and that's working for you, like, you're probably fine. You're, you're going to be okay. So uh, styling as in uh, like CSS. <clears throat> so if you came from before Bootstrap, you know, you had to write all that yourself. So you, you kind of like, you learned it and you just, it's, it's stuck with you because it hasn't changed that much. But in, this, in the last few years of just interviewing people and having people join teams, it's like, it seems that people have just kind of skipped over like any CSS. Mm -hmm. And now they come into the project and we're like, well, we need to... Uh, make a button and add a border to it, you know, <laughs> like, like simple things. And just like, I have no idea. So one piece of advice that I feel like shouldn't be skipped on is you don't have to be like an expert at CSS because the entire thing's a hack anyways, but it's like just something. That's not, that's not nearly as true as it used <laughs> once to be. It, well, so once flex, what the CSS flex grid that. comes and flex, flex box got there, it's going it, so it's like life's going to be easy and nice and yes. smooth, but before, it's like you want to do something as easy as vertically align anything. <laughs> and you're wondering why you're displaying it as a table in a table <laughs> cell so and all these different. The, the trick is to work at a company that doesn't care about, you know, older yeah. versions of older browsers like I do. We get to just use Flex pretty much Oh, everywhere. yeah, the browser thing. So that, it's like a whole <laughs> mess. But it still shouldn't be skipped. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if one is writing front-end JavaScript, and one is building user inter interfaces. And CSS is an integral part of that. And it is, you know, I came from more of a back-end background. So that's a weak, weaker area of mine that I'm trying to shore up. Uh, so that's a focus of mine. Uh, it's kind of to answer the, the, the panel question. And the other focus of mine is to try to ignore Hacker News and Reddit. And, uh, you know, just using working from first principles. Now, uh, what problem do I have that adopting technology X would solve? Just asking that question. And I talked to a lot of people. Uh, when, in my consulting days, I talked to a lot of people with some JavaScript messes who couldn't have asked that question because they were adopted. So... Um, uh, the manual use of required JS was 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 a classic a few years ago where I never uttered the words "Oh, good, required JS is in this project too." It just meant that I could never get that code in under unit test, and I just can't imagine that somebody put thought into this, saw used it anyway, saw the result, and kept going. So when <laughs> When it's taking two to three times as much time and code to ship features you could ship using technologies you already know, don't do not do that. I don't think you get to be a JavaScript engineer without some knowledge of HTML and CSS, or I don't think you should be able to. <laughs> the fundamentals, they're all so intertwined in all the work I do. I'm having design and UX discussions because I'm building the interfaces. And I have to think about what the what's going to happen to the data, too, because that's part of it as well. It's all kind of meeting in the front end now because of JavaScript. So I just I don't think you get to ignore it anymore. 
So, like, what is exciting you right now? Is there something that's exciting you right now that you think is going to be, we're all going to be talking about in six months, or uh, some tool, some subset, some piece of the frameworks you use that makes you really happy, or something that you think is up and coming, or alternately something you think needs to be there but isn't, uh, that somebody should come out and build right away? I, I would love to see a Webpack tutorial online. Period. Stop. I'm going to keep going. That includes a deploy story with cache busting. So when there's a change to your code, people get the new code. Because I've yet to see a Webpack tutorial that is actually usable in production. I have to admit that Rails 5.1 is my first exposure to Webpack because of the Webpacker gem, which is nice because I don't super have to care. Ah, there you um, go. But I did make the mistake of looking at it once, mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> it's very arcane, and I have not figured it out. Luckily, that, that, that I think is in the best tradition of Rails of shipping a decent default that you can get started with and figure out the parts that you need to tweak later. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would love to see some explanation of why. I'm most excited about some lower-level uh, view rendering stuff that's happening in both Ember and React, um, specifically because I think the focus right now is not so much on web app rendering that runs in like a laptop browser, which is fairly powerful. Like when you think, you know, when Noel started programming, uh, you know, super supercomputers were in rooms the size of this, this giant auditorium. Matt is I'm. But now people can, you know, carry supercomputers around with them all the time, some in their pockets. The the main focus of many rendering, or I'll speak specifically about Ember's rendering image, uh, rendering system, Glimmer. The main focus right now is on mobile rendering, and that's specifically because more and more people, not so much in the United States, although this does happen, but on, in the world, uh, their first and sometimes only access to the internet is through mobile device. Um, and so performance, I think in, in many ways in computing, performance kind of goes back and forth between like, oh, there's infinite performance, so who cares about writing performant code, down to like, okay, but there's not infinite performance e- equally distributed to all people, and so performant code is very, very important. Um, and typically the pattern goes like, nobody cares about performance, and so you nail some of the patterns for developers to use, and then once those are nailed, you're like, okay, cool, we can build apps, but for like 5% of people, and you know, every 100% of people deserve access to the web. One of the reasons I love programming on the web is just how... Uh, accessible it is to everyone, right? Like you don't need a special device. You don't need a vendor locked in device uh, to, to either access or begin programming in it, right? Like you can get a super old Pentium computer and program for the web and publish things. Uh, you know, there's online courses. You can learn to do it online. For me, that's amazing exposure for sort of everyone. Like you're, we're removing the barriers for people to write great applications and, and like solve problems they have. JavaScript has a huge advantage there in teaching because you don't need, you, everybody has access to a super powerful JavaScript runtime already just in their browser. And so a lot of the setup and configuration issues that you have that are like the first 30 minutes of teaching somebody, or if you're lucky, 30 minutes of teaching somebody some other new programming tool kind of go away. Or can go away. It JavaScript. can, unless yeah. you start with Babel yeah. and Webpack. Well, why and would you do that? The, br- the browser doesn't have a build phase. Reload is our build phase, which is you know slightly not true. But it is. I mean, so again, not to make fun of how ancient Noel apparently thinks he is. Sure. But there were you know there were no like what you got in the browser was the only runtime you had for JavaScript. There were not precompilers. There was not languages that compiled to JavaScript. There was Rhino. <laughs> there was Rhino, but and, and the browsers, I think unfortunately, we're often, like, not updated very frequently, right? So the language, especially JavaScript part of the browsers, like, just stayed stagnant for close to a decade, essentially, before now where it's, like, changing all the time. But, like, new cool things that you wanted or that made programming easier were just avoided because you people really bought into this, like, well, there's no build step. Then for a while there was a build step, but increasingly as browsers become rapidly updated, like, everything's evergreen except for Safari, you get the new features, right? Like the things that you required f- to use Babel for today, probably a year from now, you will not. Now there'll be a new set of things you need Babel for, but like the 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 floor of what you can use in instruction keeps going up uh, as that environment gets better and distributed to almost everyone on the planet. It's not that I'm excited about something new. I'm excited about the continuous improvement of what we already have. I'm excited to see CSS evolving with CSS grid spec coming out and how how are people learning that and how are browsers adopting that. I'm excited to see the improvements in the tools we already have. That's what excites me. 
I like to see things evolve and get better because I'm already using them. I want to keep using them. It's kind of nice. The, the stability is nice. I don't want to have to learn a new language entirely. Although I've been looking at Elixir lately and it looks kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing I'm most excited about is improving what we already have and making it better, making it faster, making it easier for new people to learn. My degree isn't in computer science. My degree is in psychology. I taught myself how to program because it was interesting. My One of my uncles said, hey, learn how to program. So I got a GeoCities website and taught myself how to do it, right? And I'm still doing it all these years later. But it's the other parts that I needed help with learning for, to be a programmer. I needed to learn how to interact with people and do Scrum and those kinds of things. It wasn't necessarily the programming part. Yeah, I think whatever tool that we can use and what we have to help teams work together and get things done faster and better are the things that I'm mostly excited about. And that has to do with like typing in JavaScript, so TypeScript and Flow. Some of the CLIs that are coming out with, like React has a CLI now. It's similar to Ember's. I think Angular 2 has their own CLI also, where you don't really have to think about your Webpack configs because it really is a it's a huge pain. I have no idea why they haven't fixed it. I'm, ima I'm imagining five years from now, it'll just kind of be like, there won't be a config. It'll just be, I just want SAS and, or post-CSS and some other thing and press enter and you're done. Millie and I are smiling at each other because like that, that's been our world for yeah. like five years. Yeah, it'll be like a CLI. <laughs> it'll be amazing. You just be like, I need these things. And then they're in your project and they all work together. Right. That Shangri-La. You can do that. Can do that yeah. Yeah. Well... <laughs> it keeps it does keep getting better okay I want to does anybody you guys have any questions so the question is any thoughts about how WebAssembly is going to affect the JavaScript ecosystem hopefully make it faster <laughs> uh, I, I will say one thing that I think is driving the web forward is the group of people working very hard to make sure that the browser ships better primitives there, there's almost like two competing groups of like the browser should ship fully baked concepts that you can just like a date picker gets built in sort of thing. And then another group of people were like, actually just a primitive for handling like selections and multiple selections of things would be, would be better. Um, not quite WASM related, but that's sort of like releasing more and more primitives that on their own don't really do anything, but unlock the ability for a framework to build the sort of functionality that I think a generation ago in internet time, so what, two years, would have been like, oh, we just have to wait for the browser to give us this cool stuff. Uh, and now the browser is, manufacturers are trying to give us sort of lower level things with which people could experiment and build new things. And if those new things become popular, they get built in, right? It's not unfeasible to think of a world uh, where JSX becomes built into the browsers at some point. And then that's just like an assumed way of doing programming. I don't think that'll actually happen, but something like that. Uh, so, so the question is, what does functional mean when we were talking about, when we were bickering about frameworks being functional? I think I was bickering. Everybody else was being professional. Um, to go all the way back, a functional programming language, all that means is that the main unit of abstraction in the, pro in the language is a function. So in... Like Ruby, the main unit of abstraction is an object, a class. that, and, and the thing about that is a class combines data and state together. So you have a bunch of state, which are the variables in the object, and then you have all of the methods that work on them together in the same place. And you have one little package that you can isolate off. And that is an exciting model because it allows encapsulation. You can say, like, everything that has to do with date time is in this file, and it uses this data, and it has these methods. The downside, especially on large projects or depending on the language, one of the downsides is that because objects typically those that state can change, the argument goes that it is hard to then think about how the object's going to behave because the object has a state that, that changes over time. Stop me if I'm saying something crazy. Okay. So another, the other, another paradigm here is functional. So there are programmings that are functional language where you don't have classes. You have data in one place and you have functions in another place. Typically, in a functional language like that, the data will be immutable, which means that once you create a new piece of data, you can't change it. You may look like you're changing it, but what you're actually doing is creating a brand new piece of data to replace the old one. And then you have a bunch of functions that are that take in data and return a value, and typically in such a way that you can guarantee that if this value comes in, 
this value will come out. The argument in favor of that is that that's much easier to think about because then you don't have to worry about state changing. You you worry about like this is the input, this is the output. And if you build a web framework based on that, you have to hack some things around because the DOM doesn't work like that. Like you have to have some way to touch the outside world and some way to deal with things that change. But that can those kinds of things can be built around it. But for the base for the bulk of your logic you have a number of small pieces of data and a number of small functions that work on them individually and that you can then typically like sort of compose in interesting ways. The downside to that is like you reduce complexity so far that you have like 4 million tiny individual not very complicated things and keeping them sort of straight becomes its own problem. Like complexity is complexity. If logic's complicated, there's only so far you can take it. But it's, it's a different way of looking at it. So Elm, which is a framework that's based on that, based on a functional language, typically you know, you have like a function that takes the state and returns HTML DOM elements rather than an object that sort of knows about its state and knows how to render itself. Did that make sense? Have you used Lodash before? Or underscore? I've never heard of that. Oh, well, that's pretty functional. <laughs> so JavaScript can be written in either way. You can actually write object-oriented JavaScript, or you can write very close to purely functional. You can't really write immutable data objects, but you can write very, very functional JavaScript in a very functional style. It, it can be used in either direction. And you'll find people who will very passionately argue for one another. There's a, there's a really good set of self-published books, the JavaScript Allonge books, Braithwaite, Reginald. Reggie. Reggie Braithwaite. And those that talk about JavaScript in a very functional style or if you, there are other places that you can look to think to talk about JavaScript in a more object-oriented style. And components tend to be more of an object-oriented kind of structure. Mm-hmm. Are there libraries that auto-generate forms based on a REST data model or JSON object? Uh, there are Rails tools that do a decent job of it. Server side, I'm not aware of anything. I think that most... I'm going to go broadly out on a limb here and suggest that most of these frameworks have like 75% baked attempts to build something like this. The happy node server-side template has some configuration options like that, where you hand it JSON and it'll generate some form stuff for you. But this is half-remembered, and I might be making it up on the spot. What's the biggest fight you've gotten in over JavaScript, and why were you right? Zach, um, I will leave the floor to you, and then the rest of us are going to go away for 25 minutes. During uh, a, a job interview that none of the rest of you were at, I was asked how I would approach building uh, an interface if I already had an API to talk to. And I suggested that I'd probably start, regardless of the fact that I had an API, I'd probably start with something server-rendered and then slowly refactor to something client-rendered if that's what the use case called for. But I wanted to get the simplest thing out the door at the time. And I could have just as easily defecated on the floor based on the reaction. Oh, they're, 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 they were looking for uh, React and Webpack. That, that was the answer they were looking for. And I, and I bet, yeah, I did not give them the right answer. I, I was thinking through, you know, how do I meet and, you know, meet an initial set of use cases and have a plan for iterating and not coding myself into a corner. That's an interview question that tells you much more about the interviewer. Yeah, that's a, that's, like, that's, a, that's a good filter question, a filter response. Yeah, we have some mutual okay. feelings about each other. I think there's a uh, common misconception that there's like a fight between JavaScript framework authors or even frameworks in general. And I, I don't think that's actually the case. I think the real fight is whether it is better to have a conventional framework or to compose a conventional framework on your own. I land very much in the, I want the smart people who have done this before to give it to me. And I feel that I've been right, at least for me and my team, in the sense of like, we're busy shipping products very quickly and not concerning ourselves with Webpack builds or where do we store state or what's the file structure of our application. Like, inconsequential decisions for which there are many right answers we just don't spend time talking about. There was a time server side when I thought the existing web frameworks were more trouble than they were worth and it was easier to write your own. And then Rails came out. And I was like, oh, this is easier. And there was a time in JavaScript land, like in Backbone, the Backbone time period, where I would have said, yeah, (laughs) 
That was one sigh at the result of the name of Backbone. People will tell you, oh, we don't, we don't use a framework. We prefer not to have a framework. But I bet when you look at their application, if it's existed for longer than a few months, there's a framework there. It's one they've wrote. It is not documented. You cannot look on Stack Overflow for how it works. Probably the people who wrote it will one day be gone. And you're going to be sitting there going like, why does this work? What is this talking to? What's the structure of this? And just have to read code over and over and over for the answer. And if you use a conventional framework, there's like books and docs and video tutorials. So this includes server rendered pages yeah. that builds up jQuery over the time, over time. I, yeah. I feel like the, I don't need a JavaScript framework was a reasonable answer up until Ember and Angular got mature enough to be production ready. And then I think. Ever since then, I think that the... The real fight is between, do you want someone else to have made your framework or do you want to make your framework? And I think in the like, oh, I just want someone to give this to me, like, there's not actually a fight. Like, the only one who cares about that in the JavaScript world is Ember. But it's a very small community because most of the JavaScript world is still in this notion of like, if I just combine many small modules, I'll have written only just the application that is needed and nothing more. I've landed in projects like that. I would never want to do that again. I think the biggest fight that I've had to deal with has to do with testing your application. Oh, and yeah. it's like... So you're arguing, don't do that. No, I'm arguing... <laughs> yeah, right. No, I'm... Yeah, I'm highly... You need to test it. Once you start building it, working on an application that's been there for a while, and you see that you change one file or you change one component, and someone's like, you know, the login doesn't work anymore. <laughs> you're like, well, why would, how would I know that? You don't have any tests that tell me that mm-hmm. where the data is going or anything like that. And the fights have been around, well, we'll write an integration test over here. We'll just spend our time on the API. And we don't have enough time. We have too many features and bugs to work on to spend the time to teach the team how to write unit tests too and pick a bugs. framework. Too many bugs to too, too many bugs to have time to write unit tests. Yeah, Sounds like a really problem that's creating <laughs> itself. Yeah, I, I will say, like, I don't love any of the frameworks testing story completely. But I will say it's been a while since I tried Embers, and I'm also, like, kind of particular. Gosh, the biggest fight. There's been so many. (laughs) You know, I've learned to pick my battles. I've been doing this for 20 years now, and I can tell you that the wisdom is figuring out what hill you want to die on. I have let big companies make bad decisions Because I need the metrics, I need the numbers to later say, here's the business value in doing it the correct way, the way I've tried to advocate for and you wouldn't listen and you just walked all over me in that meeting, remember? Here's the numbers. I can actually show you we lost two weeks because you didn't write tests and then all these things had to be retested and redone. We lost all this time, three months, because product kept saying, can you just do this little hack? Can you just do this thing? Can you just ship it? And we gave in, and we didn't stand up for the quality of our product and our code. Sometimes you just have to learn to lose those fights and then look at the numbers later because that's your ammunition because then you have something that speaks to product people. You have something that speaks to business people. You're speaking their language, and then you win the fight. So the biggest fight maybe is not one that you've actually had. It's one that you let yourself lose. I think my biggest fights were like in the 19, in the 99, 2000 range when clients wanted to build like, and at that point JavaScript was like they wanted pull down menus. <laughs> and I really, really didn't want to do it because it was such a pain to support all the browsers at the time. There was no real cross platform anything then. And I would fight about not having to write JavaScript at that point. I don't think I've had any really super big fights over it since then, even though I sat next to Zach for almost a year. I behaved myself, mostly. No, I just gave in and agreed. Oh. Is the state management pattern settled as a one God object store or per component? Well, there's... <laughs> <laughs> like, so I was trying to say, there, like, there still kind of is one that you don't directly interface with. It, just, it gets generated for you, basically but you kind of still break it up into something that's more manageable. I guess that's more of a, some advice. So you don't, you could just use one file and have everything in there. Maybe that works for certain teams. You know, it's just going to be personal preference, but the pattern isn't like you have to do either what, either way. It's kind of like there is just some store out there. And if you want to use just one file for it, you can, or you can just break it up into a bunch of small ones and have them just get merged together. Of course the, Super difficult thing is 
like the part we're just skipping over often is like the state that is in your application frequently also exists elsewhere, right? Like the browser, if you're building a, a web application, you're talking about a distributed system where state exists in multiple places. One version of that state could maybe be considered canonical. And sometimes it's on the server and sometimes it's on the client briefly, and then they shift. And so you can have state like uh, an item was added to the shopping cart and briefly the correct location for that state is on the client and then eventually syncs to the server. You wouldn't want to only have it on one of them because, you know, you wouldn't be able to have a full application, you know, which, uh, which pane in a forum do I have disclosed is purely client state and you never want to sync that to the, to the server, but you may want that to retain if a person leaves and comes back. And so you might store state in like another store that the browser holds something like local storage. So it's, even when you think like, oh, there's just the one store in our application, like it, there's actually stores conceptually sort of everywhere that you're dealing with. I think ultimately the pattern that works is you need to make sure that there that every that every piece of data has one canonical source yes. and that, that you can find out figure out where it is and that if you how you implement that is more of a detail. Where you get in trouble is. I don't know whether the client version of this or the server version of this is the real version. So when they come into conflict, I don't know what to do. Uh, I can't say that. I can't like if, if the server says that there's two items in the shopping cart and the client says there's three items in the shopping cart, you can't just split the difference and say two and a half. Like <laughs> you have to know how you're going to break that conflict. So in Ember, we have a data store for essentially server data that comes through. There's not really a great answer for where to store things like this page or this part of the page is disclosed other than on the component itself, which obviously has the flaw. If you navigate and then come back, you've lost that state. Like where does Redux, is that in the Redux? Story? No. So you could, like what I do is I, I would use local storage yeah. set, or session storage yeah. to kind of handle if I refresh the page or yeah. something like that. Yeah. You don't, you really don't have to. It depends on what kind of application you're building. But mainly if you want to be able to hit refresh, you're going to need to store it somewhere. But you also, I mean, please, I beg of you, think contextually, right? Because I work for a bank. I can't use local storage. I'm not allowed to. So it's the universal answer in all of web things. It depends because it really does. It depends. I, I would just think of it. Am I dealing with sensitive data? You know, what do I need to do? What, what should happen when I refresh? What should happen if I hit the back button or accidentally the power shuts off and my, I have to reboot my computer? Think of those things and that will help you answer what should I do in this instance? What do you like to pair front-end JavaScript with on the back-end? More JavaScript. <laughs> I do not like more JavaScript on the back-end. Do you do more JavaScript, I guess? I do yeah. more JavaScript on the back-end. I do Ruby mostly out of habit, but I, I'm also, like many people in the Ruby community, sort of intrigued by Elixir and Phoenix. I've re-implemented database migrations and cache-busting so many times that it's a joy whenever I'm back in Rails, which I am right now. I am perfectly happy to be back in a place where people have rage quit the community and the rest of us are just quietly getting shit done. We actually use Oracle databases, I think, and just they write adapters and it magically works somehow <laughs> by people other than me. Thank goodness. I mean, the, the cool thing about you know, doing web stuff is ultimately your answer is HTTP, right? Like. Yeah. If you're not writing the server stuff, you really don't care. It's just text. Yeah. Just, this, this was frequently a question in the Ember world where a lot of people involved in Ember were also involved in Rails. And people are like, oh, so you have to use Rails. It's like Meteor. It's like a client and server solution. It was like, no, actually, like we did surveys and it's PHP mostly that people are using as their backend. But to a front-end application, like, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Oh, you had the knockout problem, didn't you? Mm. I'm sorry. I'm, uh... So if any of you remember Knockout, uh, it was always associated with Microsoft. Knockout was, was, was a framework. Yeah, for, for, uh, uh, an early JavaScript data binding framework that I, I believe the person who came up with the idea went to Microsoft. But you didn't need to use any kind of Microsoft products. It was just culturally people assumed you were a Microsoft person if you were writing Knockout. But I didn't realize that Ember... Oh, I write Rails on the back end. I mean, I I would like try Elixir if I had an opportunity, but I don't have any compelling yeah. need to switch at the moment. I'm in the same boat of like I 
10 years ago me would hate me now because I've become that Java developer who's like, but this ecosystem I'm in has everything. Why would it go something <laughs> different? Like, because this, this is better, old man. <laughs> Completely true. <laughs> you all turn into the old person you hate. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's charming. Any other, any other questions? So to keep up with the adopting technology, what are some good blogs to read? I know you said you read them from 5 to 6 a.m. More some areas that you can just directly read code and teach yourself just, you know, you don't know how it works, just to read through it and teach yourself it. Where are some good sources? That's GitHub. Mm-hmm. Probably just get an, get an account on GitHub and go to pretty much any open source project and just kind of... Like, if, when I wanted to learn Angular 2, back when they were still in their alpha stages, mm-hmm. like, there was no, like, real tutorials or documentation, really. So, we just had to go straight into the source code. They documented really well in there. Mm-hmm. And you can just read through everything in there in many projects. Yeah, I learned to code in the 80s. GitHub still seems like a miracle to me. Like, source code was a rumor when I grew up. Like, it just didn't exist. Yeah, spe- um, specs often were... For, it's, Angular 2, I remember specs would save my ass because I couldn't even figure out how to boot up Angular 2. But then I stopped trying and I was a lot happier. And then just follow the pe- If you look at the contributors list, you can see who made these products. And then you can maybe follow those guys on Twitter. Just seeing other people's problems because they're going to ask questions and you'll get to read their answers. So for like Redux, you can follow Dan Abramov, who works for Facebook. You can follow Trek, Rainy Ember stuff. Paul Irish. I followed him back in the day when, because he's the guy who kind of creates and works on Chrome. Yeah. If you ever want to have any kind of Eddie Asmani, any kind of per- performance issues or questions, those are the guys you want to follow because they all have, they're the ones who build the browser where y'all use and they'll tell you exactly what to do. But just going that route, you'll start to follow. You'll see more and more people you can follow and most of them have a blog out there. This guy, Eric Elliott, he writes a pretty good blog on all things JavaScript. I've heard a while. JavaScript Weekly, the newsletter, yeah. uh, the Peter Cooper News. So emberobserver.com is amazing because it's the Ember ecosystem of add-ons. It's a website that tracks all of the add-ons people have built for Ember. And it links to the GitHub repos for each of these things. And the add-ons are categorized in such a way that you could look for anything you could possibly imagine that you need and then go look at the GitHub repo and the source code for that add-on and see how it's done. I've only been writing Ember for, gosh, almost two years. And I've already written two add-ons. Like, I'm already contributing. So that's the fastest, best way to do it. And following the right people on Twitter, you'll see who they reply to. And then you'll follow them. And it's a fun little rabbit hole that you probably want to time box. Just a word of advice. Try to time box and put your Twitter feed away when you really need to work. But it's a good way to keep up. That that time boxing comments. So, so good. Because ultimately, you want to be learning the stuff you're reading about. And if you're doing nothing but reading about it, you're not learning it. Oh, and I guess things like uh, Pluralsight. Mm-hmm. Front-end masters, those are pretty good. But I really, I guess they have free courses on yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you if you can get your company to pay for a license, which you should just ask, and they'll probably do it. I never want to pay for anything, so I'm always like, oh, yeah. can, can I expense that? Yeah, can I expense that? <laughs> but there are some really good uh, courses on there. Does anybody in here hate writing JavaScript? <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. I read your I I really just dislike it very much. Okay. And it's it's okay to not write JavaScript, I think, as an option. I mean, I don't think anybody should be forced into doing things they don't, they just absolutely hate. I fell in love with it because every time I make a make a thing move in a web page, I smile a little like an idiot. It's, it hasn't worn off. It's just one of the it's one of my little happies is the page didn't refresh and something moved. Holy crap! Right. It's not even that hard anymore. That's why I write it. But if, you know, don't feel forced into it. Their tech is a broad range of microphones to knock into. Find something you love. All right. Can you guys, can everybody just quick, uh, how to read, how to follow you on Twitter? Say it. I know it's on the name tags, but just say it on the mic so that it can get, we can get it. Uh, I'm the other Zach uh, with a Z-A-C-H. I'm uh, at Trek, T-R-E-K, not the bike. At MWQ27. <laughs> and I'm at Melanie R. Sumner. I'm at Noel Rapp, N-O-E-L-R-A-P. 
I think that we're kind of out of questions. Thank you guys all for coming. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Thank you all for coming. Uh, if you're taking a picture of the panel, add it at me because I really want to see it. And I'm in a terrible position to take a picture at the moment. Thank you all. We're- Let's get a big hand for Noel. And a big hand for these lovely people who uh, gave up their time for all of us. Yeah. Thank you. Tech Done Right is a production of Table XI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I am at Noel Rapp on Twitter, and Table XI is at Table XI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. Please send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. Table XI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. We still do have a couple of job listings open as I record this. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right.